a few weeks ago, I was uh, again reminded that when we come into a worship service, when we come and gather together as the people of God, we come and we should do this with a certain amount of fear. Uh, I'm not saying we should come afraid of what's going to happen here, but we come and we approach the worship service recognizing exactly what we're doing. We are approaching the almighty creator God, the judge of the world. We are, we are coming here as crossway, as the people of God, to worship the Lord, and the Lord cares very much how it is that we come to worship him. We, we don't do this flippantly. We don't do this because we want to come and merely just see our friends or sing our favorite songs. We are, we are coming here to hear a word from the Lord, and we are coming here together with other believers to do various things. We sing the Bible. We pray the Bible together. We, we read the Bible. We see the Bible in baptism and communion, and we hear the Bible as it is preached. God, God has instructed us how we are to approach him. God stands with his people as they approach him rightly. God stands opposed to the sinful. So, so as we approach the scriptures this morning, I want to point to this first. God is mighty and God is powerful. We're, we're going to read about that in a minute. God is mighty and he is powerful. He upholds the righteous and he strikes down those who are against him. As, as we approach the word this morning, let's do so with hearts that are ready to hear from him in faith, to hear from him and to be changed. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. Here it says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies, and your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight." You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the holy, inerrant, and sufficient word of our Lord. In this psalm, David beautifully records heartfelt words regarding his trust in the strength and the power of the Almighty God. He puts pen to paper and with full assurance of God's goodness and God's mercy upon his life. He describes God's provision and blessing over him. It, it, it is a psalm that not only informs us of David's standing before God uh, and David's enemies pending doom as they stand opposed to uh, the anointed king, but it says something to all of God's people. Throughout history, God has faithfully delivered his people. He has relentlessly defeated his enemies and has called mankind to trust in his mighty power. So, first, in this psalm, we see uh, 
David describes how God saves his people. How God saves his people. This psalm here is, is a beautiful piece of Hebrew poetry. So if you know anything about Hebrew poetry, right, it, it, it's not the same as we see in, in poetry today. We don't see rhythm and rhyme. We don't have words that rhyme with each other at the end or, or, or a cadence that um, it follows, but rather we see patterns, right? It usually employs patterns related to the content of what it's saying. And, and if you take a look at this psalm, you'll see a pretty stark pattern. So it, it kind of uh, goes up the hill and down the hill, so to speak. Um, at the heart of this psalm, it is about God's strength. It is about, it is about God's strength. David bookends this psalm in verse 1 and verse 13, talking about God's strength. All right, And then in verses 2 through 6, he impacts uh, deliverance and salvation from the Lord. In verse uh, 8 through 12, he is talking about the pending judgment of his enemies. And then in verse 7, we have the apex. We have the top of the mountain, okay? So God's strength. Then we see uh, what that results in in the lives of his people. We see what it results in, in on, the, on the downslope in, in the lives of his enemies. And then bookended by God's strength. And in the middle, we see uh, David uh, pen this beautiful verse about trusting in the Lord. So, working through the first six verses, then, we, we immediately see a couple of things, right? So, so we, when he's talking about, he's uh, praising the action of the Lord, um, that he is strong and he is powerful, Sh- something should jump off the page at us, all right? It is this simple fact. It is God that does the work. God is the primary actor in this, in the first six verses. So, so take a look again. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desires, for you meet him with rich blessing. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. His glory is great through your salvation, for you make him the most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of presence. All right, so, so it's obvious here that King David is not proud. He's not, he's not puffed up because he is somehow God's anointed. He's not patting himself on the back as if he's done something great. Rather, it is all the work of the Lord. David brags, but he, but he brags on the Lord. He's saying it is the Lord that has given him all of these good things. The Lord has blessed him. He knows that, that nothing he has brought to the table, but this is, this is all a work of God from beginning to end. So, so this is important as we work our way through the text. God initiates and completes the work in the life of the king. What does God provide the king? Well, first, we see that he, he delivers the king, right? He, he provides David with salvation. So taken in the immediate context here, we note that David has been um, a, a, a six, extremely successful king. He has, he's had a successful reign as the king of Israel. He, he has been successful in battling his foes. He has, he has led the country well. This, this psalm was not... In an occasional text, it's not written for an occasion. It's not written in response to a great victory or a great or or a uh, a great uh, defeat of his enemies. Rather, this is David writing in a a time where things are generally good, and he's recognizing the blessing of God upon his life and the life of the country, the life of the people of Israel. He was prospering, and here he is giving proper recognition for that prosperity to the one who has given it to him. He is pointing not to himself. He is pointing to the Lord. It is God who saved him. It is God who has delivered him from his enemies. David has nothing to be proud of here. He is boasting alone in God. 
So, so not only does God deliver the king, right? He, he, he's, he has delivered him from the nations around him, but not only does he deliver him, but he blesses the king. All right, it says he has given him his heart's desires. He has placed a crown upon his head. He's bestowed splendor and majesty on him. He has blessed the king. All right, so a, a couple of things in importance as we read through these verses. It is important to note the consistency of David's prayers, right? It says God uh, blessed him with his heart's desires in verse 2, and those desires are what he has requested with his lips. All right, so we can infer from this that God has blessed his heart desires because his heart desires have lined up with the desires of the Lord. And God has granted him these desires. And then David, David's lips, David's speech, David's prayer to the Lord matches his conviction, his true heart. He is not giving God lip service, but the things that he is saying matches what he truly desires. Oh, were that true of all of us, right? How often do we pray and it is inauthentic? How often do we sit here and we let our mind wander as we pray together at Crossway? How often do we lead others in prayer and we're just thinking about uh, other things or we're approaching God flippantly as if it's unimportant or, or, or worse, our convictions don't match the words that are coming out of our mouth. We are, we, we, we are inauthentic. We pray what we think people want to hear or what we should pray, but our heart condition often does not match our vocabulary. David here is blessed by God as he is praying out of a heart that is close to God. He is praying authentically. He is praying godly. We see that God blesses him with a crown. This crown uh, here, though David is a king, is not referring to a crown of coronation. It's not referring to a kingly crown necessarily. This should be thought of more as a, a crown of honor, a, a golden wreath, a crown that is placed upon somebody who has done well. It is a, it is a crown reserved for those held in high regard. So, so think of early Olympic champions, right? They had the, the, the wreaths placed upon their head, or, or even, I think more recently, when they were in Rome, they did, they did the same thing. So, so think of Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt on top of the, on top of the winner's uh, podium and, and, and receiving their medal. This is the type of honor we see David referring to here. God has blessed him. He has given him the desires of his heart. He has given him blessing and honor. He has given him splendor and majesty. He has bestowed this crown upon him in honor. This is from the Lord. God delivers the king. God blesses the king. And, and then through all this, God gives the king joy. In, in verses 1 and 6, it says, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. Down in verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. God has granted the king joy. He has given him peaceful happiness. He is not anxious. He is not sour. He is not mean. He does not come off like things are in a continual state of disarray. He is joyful. He is content in the Lord. This is a result of God's gracious salvation and deliverance that he has provided. And ultimately, through all of this, through his deliverance, through his blessing, through his joy, God is glorified in the king. The king rejoices in his salvation, and he humbly recognizes that, that the work of God that has uh, made this possible, he does not exalt in himself, but he points to the one who deserves all of the worship and all of the praise for what has happened. He stands in a long line of saints that rightly recognize this throughout history. God delivers his people. 
It is God who delivers his people. Along with that, then, we see the flip side. God condemns his enemies. So number two, God condemns his enemies. Starting in verse 8, we see the opposite of God's deliverance of his people. Here we see God's victory over his enemies. So uh, again, we must recognize it is God here that does all of the work. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow up his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. So, so, so first of all, God knows here who his enemies are. His hand will find them out. Nothing is hidden from God's hand. Nothing is hidden from his sight. David is trusting in the Lord who knows the true state of his inner being. Right? God is not mocked. God is not fooled. When we approach God, he knows. He knows you're not fooling anyone. You might be able to put on a, a facade for other people, but what good does that do you? God is not fooled. Those who are ambivalent to him, those who do not give him proper worship as he deserves, he knows. Those who are in open rebellion to him, he knows. Those who are mired in sin, he knows. Those who secretly are not trusting in him with their entirety of their lives, he knows. Those secret sins, he knows. God knows. God will find out all of his enemies. David here confirms what we know in the rest of Scripture. It is only God who knows the inner heart of man, and he knows what evil lurks there. And God does not delay, but he acts judgment upon these enemies, right? So we see David here talking in, in the, the temporal, the, the uh, immediate sense that the enemies of Israel uh, will be judged. It says, you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. God, God's righteous judgment, judgment against those who hate him, who hate his king, who hate his, his, his people uh, will be judged. They will be judged rightly, and they will be judged uh, harshly by God. Here David has been battling pagan nations, right, um, that do not honor the God of Israel. They, they, they pursue after idols and false gods and selfish desires, and God's judgment falls upon them. We see that with, that God pronounces them guilty in judgment, and then he promises to destroy them. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. God promises that his justice will prevail. Those who have sinned against him will be accurately and ultimately judged for what they have done. The enemies of God have not only shaken their fist at the nation, but at God himself. God does not let this go unpunished. The, the benevolent good creator, the sustainer of life, the giver of all good things has been spit upon. Right? The, the kindness and common grace that God has shown to mankind has gone unnoticed and has been met with open rebellion against him. God will destroy those that are opposed to him. So though enemies may rebel and fight against his people, ultimately God thwarts the wicked and God prevails. So to, to be honest with you, this text sounds harsh. Sounds harsh. It should not, we should not let our senses be dulled 
This is harsh. So let's, let's think about this for a minute. God promises to destroy them. He promises to swallow them up in his wrath. And even the children, even the offspring are judged here. If this sounds harsh to you, it should. Right? This is sobering and this is real. God is holy. God is just. He, he will not relent when it comes to sin forever. He is a good judge. So even as the harsh, harsh nature of this text is sinking in, we need to, to recognize what it is we're talking about here. Sin is horrific. God is holy. When we hear about things that happen in the news, right? when we hear about terrible events that happen, when we heard last week about the shooting in Las Vegas, about the taking of, of lives for seemingly no reason, when we hear about the atrocities of human trafficking around the globe and even closer to home, something wells up inside of us, right? We, we desire people to be brought to justice. We cry out for justice. We don't want this sin to go unpunished. We want someone to make it right. We want payment for these crimes. We want people to be held accountable for their actions. We want further actions to be discouraged. We want justice. At least, at least we want justice for others' sin. And that, that is something on, on the most basic level that is a good thing, the desire for justice. Right? This is what we see here in the harsh statements. God must execute justice. He must execute punishment for sin. God is infinitely holy, and all who have sinned against him have broken his law. They have not measured up. They are guilty before him, and they have earned the wages of their sin. Enemies of God stand condemned. So a, a couple things here. One, and most basic, we, we need to recognize why they're enemies of God. Right? It's simple, sin. Again, the enemies of the king are not just personal enemies David's collected over the years, but this is people groups that stand opposed to God's covenant people. In these verses, they are standing opposed to the king. They're standing opposed to the nation of Israel. They are standing opposed to the God of the nation of Israel. They have waged war and open rebellion against him, and, and they don't honor him as, as if he is God. They are stuck in their sin, and at the most basic root, they are, they are in open rebellion against God. So that's first. But second, we need to recognize our place in this story. Right? It's easy to read something like this and immediately identify with the good guy and immediately identify with, with the person that, that is the protagonist in the story. We, we automatically associate ourselves with that. This, it's not the same, or that's no different than when we watch a movie or read a book, right? So, so immediately we are fully behind the Avengers or the Jedis or like uh, my boy Nate over here, Lego Batman, or uh, if you're my wife, it's Jack Bauer. We identify with, with those people. That's who, that's who we identify with. We see virtue in those people. That's who we want to be. However, when we come to passages like this, we need to take a step back. We need to take a sober look. Are, are we the good guys here? Are we the protagonist in here? Are we identified with the king here? Were we always the good guys? Is that truly where, where we find ourselves? Is that where we belong? If you turn over a few books in the New Testament and go to 1 Corinthians, we see a different picture. Right? We see Paul say, or do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, God's judgment against sin. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the king of God. Then he says, and such were some of you. All right, that should have an impact on our attitude. That should have an impact on the way that we read these verses. Rather, rather than feeling superior and saying, I'm with the king, right, or safe or arrogant, this should drive us to our knees. Look, you are not special. You are not smarter than the people out there who are doing some of these things that Paul lists. You're not better than them. Right, such were some of you. We were born sinful. We were born in a state of rebellion against God. And short of his gracious intervening in our lives, we have no hope whatsoever. We stand condemned. We stand before a blazing oven, right? We stand ready to be consumed by God's wrath because of our sinful nature. When we read harsh verses like this where, where God is destroying the wicked, we need to not just cheer it on, but we need to take pause. This was me. This was you. And, and aside from God's grace, this is you. We don't, we don't deserve anything he has given given to us. So, so this should not be an us versus them mentality. When we come to a text like this, that should not be the first place we go. There is a call here for repentance and faith in the one that is the glorious and righteous and strong judge. This is not a time to point fingers or act superior, but it is a time to take account of our thoughts and our actions and bring them before the Lord. Doug led us in a prayer of repentance earlier. That is not a one-time event that happens. That is a continual life of coming back before the Lord, saying, I have sinned against you, and turning from that sin. God knows your heart. God knows your heart. God will judge the world, and he will condemn the sinful. This is a call to sober repentance. In this passage, we see why David then is so confident in the Lord. King David has rejoiced in God's delivering actions, right? He has recounted the pending judgment incumbent upon all of his enemies. And all of this, number three then, all of this is because David trusts in God's mighty power. He trusts in God's mighty power. At the apex of the psalm, we unlock the passage. And we see why David can confidently call upon the Lord. And then in verse 13, we see the, the result. So, so verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Lord, uh, of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So as we read the words of the king, we see that he is firmly planted on a solid foundation. He is trusting in the mighty power of God, right? This song is about God's strength, and it is in that strength that he is placing all of his trust. God is strong and powerful and mighty to deliver him from his enemies. He has blessed him with the desires of his heart. He has placed honor and splendor upon him. He has revealed himself to the king, and he is with the king. David is confident in his deliverance because he has fully trusted in the Lord. 
So, so secondly, then, he recognizes that he serves a steadfast and merciful God. God is trustworthy because he is our creator, he is our covenant-keeping God, and he has shown himself to be faithful. He has shown himself to be merciful to sinners throughout history. He has, he has promised to protect Noah from the flood, and he delivered. He promised Abram that he would make a great nation out of him, and he delivered. He promised Jacob that he would be preserved, and through Jacob. Uh, uh, actions of his son, the family was preserved through a great famine. He kept his people safe in the wilderness. He, he gave Israel the promised land. He gave his people a king as he promised, and he prospered them as he said he would. He is a steadfast, covenant-keeping God, holding to his promises, and he is merciful upon sinful people. David knows this, and, and this is why he can even approach the Lord. It is only because of the character of the God that we serve. David trusts him, and God is faithful. If, if you're going, uh, if, you, if I have a friend of mine that, that comes up to me and he asks to borrow a large sum of money, right? There's a couple of, of sides to this transaction, right? I need to trust him that he is going to repay me, and he needs to be someone who has shown himself to be of good character, right? It's different if Al or, or Micah or Sharon come up to me and ask me if, if, if they can borrow something versus some stranger on the street, right? So I need to place my trust in them. They need to show themselves to be faithful. God, more than uh, anything, has shown himself to be faithful throughout history. David is firmly planted, then finally because he recognizes that those that stand against him, and, and by proxy, those who stand against the Lord, will ultimately fall under God's mighty hand of judgment. God protected the king as promised, and God judged the rebellious nations that opposed him. So, so we see the king trusting in the Lord here, and that was, that was very meaningful, as it was written in the Old Testament, Israel uh, standing against pagans around him. Um, however, however, we cannot... And must not simply read this as an old covenant Israelite that, that flattens the text. We have been given a fuller and richer revelation. And we need to read this in light of the cross. David is writing from the perspective of the king, and this is, this is true. He's writing from the perspective of the king of Israel, and this is true. But we see in David's greater son the true and better king. David is a type of the one to come. So where David earnestly prays that the desires of his heart match uh, the request of his lips, we have one who lived with true integrity. Christ's desires perfectly reflected the will of the Father. Where David was bestowed with temporal blessings in this life, Christ has been bestowed with eternal blessings. Where David received the crown of honor from God, Christ has been crowned as the beloved and obedient son with whom the Father is well pleased. Where David ruled and reigned a good long life on this earth, King Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the Father forever, and he rules forevermore. David praised God for his glorious salvation over his earthly enemies. Christ has defeated the greatest enemy in sin and death. He has been raised back to life, and the salvation that he provides God's people is an eternal deliverance. Jesus is the true and better king. Jesus is the true and better king, bringing salvation for all who turn to him in repentance and faith, placing their trust fully on him and his strength.
reading this passage as a new covenant believer with all of the scriptures to inform our interpretation, we see a fuller, richer picture of God's revelation. Likewise, in this passage, we see a clearer view of God's judgment upon sinners. God not only knew the enemies of Israel, but God knows who are against him today. We cannot hide from this knowledge. God knows our hearts. God will judge the living and the dead, determining the guilty from the innocent. The guilty will be judged according to his word here. They will be utterly destroyed. He will consume them. The imagery here is that of a consuming fire, a blazing oven. And all who are subject to this are eternally and forever damned. God will thwart the schemes of the wicked and they shall not prevail. He will put them to flight as he punishes them for sin and open rebellion against him. But, but friends, we don't stop there. We, just as we saw King Jesus is the true and better David, we also see a sobering reality here in light of the, in light of the cross. It is the king the one who trusted the Father that was subjected to the wrathful justice described in the second half of this psalm. We don't read this uninformed as to what God's wrath looks like, nor do we read this without knowledge of the King, the true King that has endured this for us. Though Christ was eternally with the Father on the cross, he was treated as an enemy of God. Though Jesus lived a life of sinless perfection on the cross, he was treated as a guilty criminal. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. Though Christ was the perfect embodiment of obedience to the Father, he was crushed and he was consumed and he was buried. Jesus Christ endured all that we see in verses 8 through 12 on the cross. He has taken the wrath of God the Father And he has done this so that the guilty sinners may be reconciled to God. These verses sound harsh, but it is not until we realize that God so loved us that he subjected his own son to the very judgment on our behalf that we can really understand his steadfast love. Christ died for unworthy sinners. In a few weeks from now, in our community groups, we will read a sermon by the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, where he talks about this very thing. Um, I cannot improve upon his words as recorded here, so I won't even try. Uh, Spurgeon says, speaking of this, Christ suffered all the horrors of hell. In one pelting shower of iron wrath it fell upon him with hailstones bigger than a talent, and he stood until the black cloud had emptied itself completely There was our debt, huge and immense. He paid the utmost farthing of whatever his people owed. And now there is not so much a doit or farthing due in justice of God in the way of punishment from any believer. And though we owe God gratitude, though we owe much to his love, we owe nothing to his justice. For Christ, in that hour, took all of our sins, past, present, and to come, and was punished for them all there and then, that we might never be punished because he suffered in our stead. Do you see then how it was that God the Father bruised him? Unless he had done so, uh, unless he had so done, the agonies of Christ could not have been equivalent for our sufferings. 
For hell consists in the hiding of God's face from sinners. And if God had not hidden his face from Christ, Christ could not, I see not how he could, have endured any suffering that could have been accepted as an equivalent for the woes and agonies of his people. So, So what about us? What does this text, what does Psalm 21 demand from us? What is, what is the king's response to this? Right? The king rightly recognizes God's strength. This is about God's strength. He rightly recognizes God's strength. He extols his strength in God's deliverance and has, in salvation. He, he recognizes God's power over his enemies. But he is firmly planted on God's side. And why, why is this? We see the answer again at the apex of the psalm, right in the middle in verse 7. For the king trusts. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. It is because of his trust in the steadfast love of the Most High. It is no less true for us today. It is no different for us than it was for the king. Our response, shows, uh, our response to God shows whether we are with him or we are against him. So, so, so let me ask you this. And do you trust him? Do you truly trust him? God knows, right? God knows. God knows our inner, inner being. Are the desires of your heart matching the prayers that are coming out of your lips? Are you authentic in treasuring Christ? Do you pray with integrity? Or do you pray giving lip service as if he doesn't see your heart? And like the king, do you have an eternal perspective? Right? Or is your focus on the here and now, the, the temporal things of this life? Are, are you joyful in your salvation? Or would an outsider have a hard time seeing that joy in your life? Do, do we approach God with fear, knowing that he is strong and that he is powerful? Both the power to save and the power to condemn with his wrathful judgment. Do you, do you fear impending judgment? And do you truly trust in his steadfast love? We, we are called in scripture to inspect ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. My prayer for us this morning is that we can firmly, with David, declare God is our salvation. My, my, my prayer is that we can declare that by his death and that by his burial and resurrection that we have seen God's salvation and placed our trust in him alone. In a minute we will sing, uh, Come by the Blood. There is no other way to approach the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are strong and mighty. You are powerful and you are a good and just judge. Father, I pray that this morning we come to you with hearts that are pure, with hearts that match the words that come over our lips. Father, I pray this morning that we We trust you as the faithful, covenant-keeping God. I pray this morning that anything that would hinder us from approaching you in truth and love as, as, as authentic Christians, Father, I pray that you would blow that out of our, out of our lives and that we would, we would come to you knowing that you are a good God ready to forgive those who are repentant. Father, I pray that you be with us the rest of the day as we think through your, your truth in Psalm 21. In your name we pray. Amen.